People have been putting holes in each other's heads as a form of medicine since the dawn of human history. Strange behavior has long been thought to originate in the brain, and there is a great deal of evidence showing that the solution for these abnormalities was the same in many places at many different times. It was trepanation, or the practice of boring through a person's skull to the brain. In fact, trepanation may be the oldest surgical procedure for which we have clear archaeological evidence. Prehistoric human remains reveal the telltale holes, and cave paintings show trepanation being performed. In the Middle Ages and into the 18th century, it was thought that seizures, mental disorders, and other aberrations were caused by evil spirits, so tiny, hand-cranked drills were used to make holes in the skull to allow the spirits to escape. None of these surgeries, however, took into account the complexity of the brain itself, or the specific responsibilities of each region. So the first modern attempt at brain surgery happened in 1890, when a German researcher named Frederick Goltz cut out sections of his dog's temporal lobes. After the operation, the dog appeared sweeter and less aggressive and hostile. Soon after, at a Swiss mental hospital, Gottlieb Burkhardt set out to try the first true psychosurgery on six of his schizophrenic patients. On three of them, it did indeed seem to work. They were less agitated, calmer, maybe even a bit happier. But two of them wound up dead. Welcome to Psychologia. The podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Amaya Pritt. Burkhardt's failures did not halt the progress of brain surgery. A few decades later, at Yale University, Carlisle Jacobson performed the same operation on several chimpanzees and found that they became more docile and indifferent to stress. It was Antonio Egas Moniz, however, a researcher at the University of Lisbon Medical School in Portugal, who began to refine the procedure. Egas Moniz was a skilled and knowledgeable man. Who had worked to improve brain X-ray techniques, served as the ambassador to Spain and the minister of foreign affairs, and even signed the Treaty of Versailles. In 1936, while working on treatments for psychosis, he found that severing the nerves connecting the prefrontal cortex to the thalamus could stop repetitive, intrusive thoughts. He devised a simple method for the surgery. He would drill a small hole on either side of the head, then insert a specially designed knife into the brain that he called a leucotome, which had a small loop of wire at its tip that could be twisted to create a circular lesion, effectively cutting off the prefrontal cortex from the rest of the brain. He called the procedure leucotomy, but it would come to be known as lobotomy. For some patients, the operation helped. For others, it did not. Egas Moniz had a great deal of faith in the procedure, however, and said, quote, 
Prefrontal leucotomy is a simple operation, always safe, which may prove to be an effective surgical treatment in certain cases of mental disorder. In 1949, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for his, quote, discovery of the therapeutic value of leucotomy in certain psychosis. Later that year, he was shot four times by a patient and left paralyzed from the waist down, only able to work from a wheelchair for the remainder of his life. The true superstar of the lobotomy, particularly in the United States, was Walter Jackson Freeman II. Born in 1895 to a privileged family in Philadelphia, Freeman had a passion for neurology and a flair for the dramatic. After attending Yale and the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, he moved to Washington, D.C., where he became the city's first practicing neurologist. In 1936, he heard of Igaz Moniz's leucotomy, and within a year of the first procedure being performed in Europe, Freeman threw himself into its study and development. On September 14, 1936, Freeman and his research partner James Watts conducted the first prefrontal lobotomy in the United States on a woman named Alice Hood Hammett of Topeka, Kansas. Over the next 12 months, the duo performed at least 20 procedures. Freeman claimed to see immediate results, and he quickly became a fervent and evangelical promoter of the operation. By 1942, he and Watts had performed over 200 lobotomies and wrote that they had a 63% success rate with only 23% of patients remaining unchanged and a mere 14% leaving the surgery in worse shape. Meanwhile, in Italy, a doctor by the name of Amaro Fiamberti began experimenting with a new method of psychosurgery. Rather than drilling holes in the sides of the skull to access the brain, Fiamberti drilled through the orbital plate, the thin layers of bone behind the eye. He first performed the procedure in 1937, but news of it spread slowly. It wasn't until the mid-1940s that Walter Freeman got wind of it, but when he did, he quickly became enamored with the idea. See, to Freeman, the traditional form of trepanation prevented the miraculous cure from being given to those who needed it most, severely mentally ill psychiatric patients. Because of its complicated surgical nature, psychiatrists were ill-equipped to conduct the operation. Freeman realized, however, that going through the eye socket would eliminate this problem, and he believed that it was possible to do this without the aid of a drill. So, in 1945, he pulled an ice pick out of his own kitchen drawer and jammed it into a grapefruit. Soon, he was testing out his new method on cadavers. And then, on January 17, 1946, he performed the first transorbital lobotomy on a live patient, a woman by the name of Sally Ellen Ionesco in Washington, D.C., after sedating her with electric shocks, he hammered an ice pick through the orbital plate of each eye right beside the tear duct and moved it around until he had, he believed, separated her prefrontal cortex from the rest of her brain. When he was done, he sent her home in a taxi cab. 
Freeman thought he had found a wonderful solution to the treatment of severe mental illness in the transorbital lobotomy. Here is a clip of him describing its advantages, recorded as part of an informational video to explain the procedure. Transorbital lobotomy has further advantages in that it leaves no scar, it is performed through an operating field that is normally sterile, and the stiff tarsal plate forms an ideal reinforced dressing. Transorbital lobotomy can therefore be performed without the need for elaborate precautions against hemorrhage and infection. This same video provides a graphic bit of footage showing a lobotomy with accompanying step-by-step instruction from Freeman. It's quite fascinating to watch, but not for the faint of heart. A link to the full video is posted in the show sources section of our website, but even the audio is worth a listen. Here, Freeman walks the viewer through the complete procedure, beginning once several electroshocks have been given to functionally anesthetize the patient. Now that the convulsion has subsided, the nurse holds a towel over the nose and mouth of the patient. The operator lifts the upper eyelid, inserts the leukotome into the conjunctival sac, and aims it parallel with the bony ridge of the nose. He drives the point through the orbital plate, and at a depth of five centimeters, swings the handle far laterally. He then returns the instrument to a slightly oblique position, still parallel with the bony ridge of the nose, and drives it two centimeters further. Steadying the patient's head, he then moves the handle of the instrument about 20 degrees medially and 30 degrees laterally. In this latter position, he strongly elevates the handle of the instrument, often fracturing the orbital plate. A year after Freeman began championing the transorbital lobotomy, his longtime research partner, James Watts, left him. Watts felt uncomfortable with the changes Freeman had made to the surgery, and he saw the new, speedy version as barbaric. There were others who agreed with him, but the medical and psychiatric communities in general saw the modified practice as a wonderful advancement. Rates of lobotomy skyrocketed. In the year 1946, when the first transorbital procedure was conducted, a mere 100 surgeries were done in the United States. But by 1949, the year the operation reached its peak, a full 5,074 were undertaken. By 1951, approximately 18,600 people in the U.S. had been lobotomized, and the craze for lobotomy was rampant in many other countries, too. The operation was done primarily on women, but it was also recommended for criminals across the United States and Europe, and in Japan, it was even used on, quote, difficult children. Freeman began touring the country performing lobotomies. He drove a van he called his lobotomobile, and he did the surgeries not only in hospitals and doctor's offices, but in public forums where people could come see the fast pace with which he could conduct a full psychosurgery. He began to set challenges for himself, trying to top the total number of operations he could do in a single day. His assistants reported that he would do them back to back, without taking a break or leaving the operating stage. In one day, he managed to set a record when he performed 25 surgeries before nightfall. He charged $25 an operation and is believed to have done lobotomy surgeries in 23 states. His showmanship far outweighed his ethics, and he got so comfortable with the procedure that he would sometimes do both eyes at once, 
holding an ice pick in each hand and thrusting them through the socket simultaneously. There's a particularly brutal anecdote that tells of a time when, mid-procedure, he wanted to pause for a photograph. When he turned to the camera, he released the ice pick, which he had already buried in his patient's skull. Without his hand holding it in place, the pick suddenly moved, and the patient, immobilized and trusting the doctor's judgment, was so badly wounded that he died. Many doctors and nurses who witnessed him in action were horrified, some to the point of outright nausea. One nurse who assisted him described the gruesome sound made by the leukotome cutting through the brain as the sound of tearing cloth. Following the surgery, his patients were often rendered incapable of caring for themselves. Many even had to relearn how to eat or use the bathroom. But Freeman so believed in the cure-all nature of his transorbital lobotomy that he barely hesitated to perform it as a solution to a myriad of troubles. Any type of psychosis? Lobotomy. Depressed housewife? Lobotomy. Unruly teenager? Lobotomy. He even conducted them on children, and there are reports that he lobotomized 19 people under the age of 18, the youngest of whom was only four years old. By 1967, Freeman had performed 2,900 lobotomies. Then, in February, he conducted a transorbital lobotomy on a longtime patient named Helen Mortensen. She had already had two previous lobotomies in his hands, and this time, she died of a brain hemorrhage. Finally, Freeman was banned from operating. By the mid-1950s, there was public outcry against the lobotomy's brutal methods and unstable results. Longitudinal studies began to pop up, showing that only approximately one-third of lobotomy patients showed any improvement, while a third remained the same, and the final third got worse or even died. Fortunately, the rise of the lobotomy coincided with research into another field, pharmacology. Through a series of trials and errors that began with the hunt for a new antihistamine, a drug was created that successfully worked as an antipsychotic, and in 1951, chlorpromazine emerged on the market under the name Thorazine. Thorazine was known as the chemical lobotomy, and it began taking the place of the extreme psychosurgery. Today, lobotomies are only performed in severe cases in which all other options have failed and they never involve an ice pick. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with assistance from Mario Rivera and original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. You can find all episodes of Psychologia on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Take a moment to write us a review. It really helps us out. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Cast and visit our website for show notes and supplemental materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back next time with another episode exploring the science behind why we do when your emotions what we do. control your eyes. Ah,